The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are going to be talking about Confucianism as we introduce our theme on world religions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, how did Confucianism's enduring impact affect women in China? Oh, that's and big. That's a big topic. It is a huge topic. And we're going to use Confucianism to introduce our theme on world religions, which is such an important theme in women's history. Yeah. Religious history, medical history, all sorts of these sort of like subtopics of history that don't get covered in classes all the time. Yeah. Are, you know, sort of like separate from wars and economics and politics and diplomacy. Yeah, the regular yeah, male sphere. These are really great ways to get women into history because regardless of the religion you're talking about, women were there. And one thing that I think is a misperception is like, okay, so Abraham, for example, founded Judaism, mm -hmm. but his wife, Sarah, was the first convert. And we've talked about her in yeah, a previous she's episode. Pretty incredible. We have, you know, with Islam, you have Muhammad, yay, but Khadija, his wife, first convert. Yep. With Jesus Christ, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, and there's all these women who are, like, following along with him. Yeah, um, and creating the crowd. Creating the crowd, and also, like, literally helping shape doctrine and ideology. And some would say if these were businesses, they would be the COO to the CEO of these religions. Right. <laughs> and it's just a really great way to tell women's stories. And then, so separate from the founding of these faiths, you can also look at the impact these faiths had on women in right. those cultures, wherever these are, they're popping up around the world. And I think it's just a really powerful way to talk about ideology, culture, women, gender, sexual identity and preference and all of those types of things. So I think this is such a powerful theme. In this theme, we're going to have um, a little mini series on Islam in Ooh, particular. A mini Islam. Yeah, we have Dr. Shahala Hayri with us. She is a professor at Boston University who wrote an amazing book about Islamic queens. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to get her her book and her story and um, this wonderful history that she's written into our into our 
series and give everybody a little bit of a taste of Islam over different time periods. Mm -hmm. So she looks at um, women in the founding period of Islam and then women in the medieval era of Islamic history and then more modern women leaders in, in the Muslim world. And so we have those episodes coming up and then one of our board members is coming on to talk about um, women in the Protestant Reformation. And love that one. Right? Like so cool. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how the Protestant Reformation changed so much for women. And she really helps us see that not only did it change so much for women, but women were a part of the movement that created all of that change. Very cool. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm really stoked <laughs> about, about all of those. We're also going to um, republish some episodes that we've done already um, in season one on the theme of religion, just to like reshare those and, and have people, you know, remember things that they may have forgotten. Or if you missed those episodes somewhere yeah. along the line, like here's a great way. So we'll put them up as bonuses on season two. Bonus. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just excited with all the things to come. So today we're going to talk about Confucianism. I mean, where do you start? Where do you start? Well, one of the things that we need to start with is, is it actually a religion? Oh. <laughs> Step one. Step one. Make sure it fits in the theme. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a big, a big debate. And some oh, do people, tell who's debating. Well, like historians and it, it, some people think it's either a philosophy or a religion. And that I could see why that makes sense. It's because it because it's not. Well, they might have like like Confucius, for example, the founder right. of Confucianism. Um, he's considered sort of like a spirit not like a god or a prophet or something like that. Yeah. And he's he's like very much considered a real man who lived, right? And and there's like historical record to back that. Okay. So he's not like He's not like Jesus where people are like no he was the son of god on earth, like that right. sort and of like thing. Right. And like a mythical creature. Or god himself or yeah. you know whatever the various sects believe. Um so 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 that's kind of controversial. And then um so but it's not it's not it's more of a uh ethic, a way of life, a way of right, being. He was kind of like the first self-help book. <laughs> In some ways, yeah. <laughs> but also like a society self-help book. Like this is how we, we should live. Should, yeah. Be. And govern. Yeah. So I think for our purposes in trying to tell a women's history, to ignore Confucius and his impact, the impact of Confucianism on the society at large it would be wrong. Right. And then secondly, the impact of Confucianism on Chinese society at large is very similar to the impact that Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and other religions, Buddhism, yep. Hinduism, other major world religions had on their region, and especially in the way that it impacted women and their status in the society, it, it's we have to sort of look at it the same way that we look at world religions. So it's kind of a non-answer as to whether I think it's yeah, wait philosophy on the fence. Or, or religion because because it's 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 sort of irrelevant. The impact is the same, and so we're going to lump it with these other religions, even All if right. even if it's not a religion. I'll follow your breadcrumbs. Let's go. Okay. So <laughs> Brooke. You seem to know some things about Confucianism, which is very impressive. Well, don't quiz me. But <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> okay. Well, Confucianism has existed for about 2,500 years. So you can date it around 5,000 before Common Era, BCE. Right. So this, I equated it before we started recording to Socrates, same like relative time Relative era. time period, yeah. So Socrates is like ancient Greece, which is around the founding of Rome, which is around yeah. the sound, same time. I took a course in college that did all of like the different philosophies of education and Confucianism was in the mix yeah. with Socrates and um, like Montessori and a few others. Yeah, totally. So it's an ancient Chinese belief system and it focuses on the importance of personal ethics and morality. So people debate it um, whether or not it's a religion or not. And we're sort of just not engaging in that conversation. <laughs> put it down. Put it down. If okay. you have it in your mouth, put it down. So Confucius is the philosopher who recorded all of these ideas. One thing that's really interesting is that he is not necessarily the original author. He's not the idea man. He, um, some people think that all he was doing was really just writing it down. Record keeper. He's the record keeper. More like... Secretary. Yeah, like a scholar. I mean, he's like, he's saying, these are things people are talking about, and here's... And I'm recording it. Yeah, I'm recording our time period. Um, which is interesting, because I had always assumed that it was... His these own are his, ideas. These are his thoughts. Hey, put his name on it. Well, yeah, more people put his name on it for him. <laughs> Don't put your name on the paper and pass it in. You'll get credit. You'll get credit, buddy. <laughs> um, okay, so he – some people think he's a record keeper. Some think it's his general ideas. I think more – most people think it's, okay. it's he's a record keeper. So he's the first court stenographer of that time period. Got yes. <laughs> the main idea of Confucianism is the importance of having a good moral character. And if you have a good moral character, then you can then have this like positive impact on the world around you. And that will create sort of like a society or community wide harmony. And it's a really, you know, in some ways, it's a very beautiful philosophy. Of like a utopian society. Yeah. And this emphasis on everybody coming together um, and, and, more communal rule. And you can see how centuries, centuries later, this could lend itself to an ideology like communism and the two could like blend Whoa. well together. You just leapfrogged to that. Oh, yeah. Jumping way ahead. Millennia, in fact. <laughs> you want to go for socialists? <laughs> <laughs> but you could see how some of those ideas of like, we're all going to have this like, we are going to take personal responsibility for, for the, the collective. Yeah. Um, might later lend itself to some of those ideas. He believed in the importance of education in order to create this, the virtuous character of the citizens. Mm. And, um, and so I, I think that's really powerful. And when he was speaking, he was typically speaking of all, not just men. No, he means men. We'll oh. talk about that later. Yeah. He's, he's a man of his time. Let's be very clear. <laughs> <sighs> See the uh, shock on my face. <laughs> One of the things that leads to this sort of like male-centric idea is the emphasis in Confucianism on filial piety, which is devotion to the family. And this is really crucial to Confucian thought. Um, devotion can take form um, in like ancestor worship. I don't know why this comes to mind, but do you remember the movie Mulan and how? Do they, I remember the movie Mulan? We're finally talking about a topic I know. <laughs> how they Would go you like and they pray to the song? ancestors? <laughs> <laughs> Which scene? All of the above when they get Mushi. I think it's Mushu. Anyway. Oh, now who's watched the movie? Me. <laughs> 
so anyway, I, th- that's sort of an example of that, that ancestor worship and, and valuing and wanting to honor your ancestors. Those who came before. Yeah, those and, who came and before. And lead in their honor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Don't bring pile. dishonor to our home. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Should we do a whole episode no, on Mulan? Yeah, maybe. And its historical facts. <laughs> Um, Mulan, by the way, I, I have to say this as a historian, is um, probably not a true story. It's more like mind a, blown. It's more like a cultural story that's let's told. not start attacking Disney. Okay, <laughs> well, it wasn't and Disney? All. It's a it's a story that's been told in Chinese history over and over and over again what through about centuries. Moana? Okay, Moana is not even Chinese, so you're just throwing stuff. Yeah, I just need to know: Is Cinderella real? Did she exist? <laughs> Probably not. Snow White. Let's go down the list. (laughs) I regret bringing up Mulan (laughs) immediately. Okay. So uh, submission to parental authority is another way that um, filial piety can can manifest. So really listening to – and I think this also speaks to respecting your ancestors and those who came before. So when your parents tell you to do something, respecting that. Yeah. And, you know, it's this is really, I think, different than – in our our society right now, because there's so much. When you say ours, like American culture, American Western because modern culture, because modern culture in China still, I think, has a lot of these yes ideologies embedded today. Yeah, and what I think is so different is just the value that we put on youth in our culture. Mm. Oh, like we almost revere them, and the, and then. <laughs> And they're like dumb. They're young and dumb. And, you know, Aww. all these like wonderful, wise people who've lived long lives and might have something to say are sort of like, oh, yeah, but you're old and whatever. Like, have you ever know. seen that movie with Jonathan Taylor Thomas where they put the old people out on the ice raft and push them out to sea? <laughs> no, it's horrible. <laughs> I'll but find probably out. exemplary of what we're talking <laughs> but about. But yes, it was very like, oh, American culture. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. So this is, this is the opposite. And so that fa- that idea of honoring the parents really extends to honoring all people of authority and really having that respect Whoever's for authority. Got a more senior age on you. Yeah. And so that extends to the emperor. Um, it extends to, you know, whoever. Older siblings. Yeah. <laughs> older siblings. I had a, I've had several opportunities to travel to China. And, um, but one of the, the very first time I traveled to China, um, I was going with, I was stu- going to study, p- uh, political science in, uh-huh. in China. And, um, my professor was this older gentleman who had white hair and a beard. And we were all, you know, between the ages of like 18 and 22 or whatever college students are. And in order to teach us a little bit about Confucian society, an exercise he had us do was um, line up by birthday in birth order. And once we were in birth order, if you were like kind of close to somebody in birthday, if you were male, you got to move towards the older side. And if you were female, you had to move towards the younger side. What was the internal rage happening in your body? So much rage. And for people (laughs) who um, don't know, I have always been the baby of my class. I have an August birthday. So I was like right at the cutoff. So not only was I the youngest person on this, but I was a girl. Actually, no, I think I wasn't the youngest. I think I was second youngest, but some boy got put a head of me. So I became 
the lowest, the lowest tone, rung, the lowest on the totem pole. And he had us turn and look to the people that were older than us or, or more, more except, you know, more powerful in Confucian society. And like, these are the people that you should be looking up to and respecting and honoring. And then look to the people younger than you. And of course I'm looking at no one because there's no one. Dead next. air. Dead <laughs> air for Kelsey. There. Um, but these are the people that you should be protecting and taking care of. And so I think that's partly why, you know, the male students were moved up in rank because of that emphasis on protection. And Hmm. um, interesting. Yeah. So and and that's just a silly exercise that somebody could do with with students to help illustrate this difference. But I think it also is a way in society to show rank to some extent. Um, but even, you know, I would, I would argue that like even mothers of households, if the father's not around, like mm-hmm. this, the firstborn son often like outranks, you know, and might, the mother. Yeah. yeah. That's true. in even British societies. Yeah. It was interesting, even just traveling through China and seeing it in practice, Wherever we went, my professor with his white hair and his blue eyes and his big beard, Mm -hmm. he was a celebrity. And people – and, you know, if you are white or African-American or indigenous American, you stand out in Chinese society. And so we all stood out like sore thumbs. I remember one point I was walking down the street with my friend Ingrid, who's from Ghana. She had dyed her hair red. So she's like – very dark and got red hair. <laughs> and my friend, Rachel, who ha- is about six feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I have, for those who can't see me, I have curly brown hair and green eyes. The three of us were like a walking spectacle, you know, <laughs> and we were constantly asking, you know, people were asking to take selfies with us and things like that, which was very weird. Cause I'm like, I'm not a celeb, like I'm not even cool. <laughs> yeah. Just um, your average white person. Just white. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, um, that said, whenever we were with our professor, he was the lead attraction and everyone wanted selfies with him. Oh, sure. Um, old, white, old, white dude. dude with a big beard and just like, you know, looked, looked the part that they were looking for. So, um, and that they would, that they would revere. So the, that's just, those are just silly personal illustrations from my yeah. experience that, as an American, as a Western person, I was like, this is, this just feels different. And to some extent, I, I think our culture is so far the other way that it's mm. almost hard to appreciate how important it would be to respect, oh, to yeah. respect our well, elders. Just think about like people older than you in the grocery store line here in America, you would not let them cut you and go first. Like yeah. most wouldn't. Yeah. But in that country, you know, the older you are, the more revered you are and the quicker you get out of their way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. So Confucianism is incredibly influential in Chinese culture. And at various points in Chinese history, it comes sort of, it never really goes out of fashion per se, but it has greater emphasis at different points under different dynasties through okay. Chinese history. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, 
We are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, And they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. Yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, which is really cool. So definitely if you're interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about Confucius the man, and I promise we're going to get to two women's history in this, but I think... Yeah, um, where are we? (laughs) (laughs) So Confucius the man came from a family that was aristocratic in his time period. He lived around 500 BCE. Okay. So he could read, write, had some money, roof over his head. Yep. Paper to write on. Yep. Um, In Chinese history, he was born during the spring and autumn period, um, which was approximately 770 to 481 BCE. Remember, the numbers go down when you're in that. It's weird. Don't worry. Yeah, remember that one, guys? (laughs) (laughs) He lived in Lu, which is a regional state in eastern China, uh, which is now the Shandong province. Confucius's father had nine daughters in an earlier marriage and one son that was disabled. So when Confucius was born to a much younger wife, he was he became the only real heir to his father's wealth. He dies because he's much older. I mean, he's already had nine kids. So he's an older man by the time Confucius is born. And um, so Confucius is basically left with nine half-sisters and a disabled brother and this like really young widow who has no idea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he was pretty candid in his writings about his family background. Um, he said that he was poor and from a lowly station, even though he had this aristocratic background. And because he was poor, he felt like he had become skilled in a lot of menial things. And you could see how somebody with that aristocratic background, but yet the experience of being poor might have a way into like a lot of different worlds in order to get a really good sense of 
society. He sort of works in a bunch of different jobs over the course of his life. And then eventually um, he gets into problems of law and he has a bunch of kind of impressive diplomatic assignments that show that he's a relatively smart person. Eventually, he pulls away from that life because there's this sort of scandal where a bunch of families had moved toward, like, had been uh, ruined, essentially, by association with him. And a lot of heads of households suspect foul play and sort of look at him as the, the, the culprit. Ouch. So he takes this as an opportunity to go into self-exile. And he goes on this like 14-year journey around China. Do I just well, someone today? I'm going into self-exile. Now is the time. <laughs> now is the time. Turn off the social medias. I will see you later. <laughs> we should all start calling it that. Hashtag self-exile. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I think when my kids are bad, I'm going to, you're not in timeout, you're in self-exile. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't hit your brother, you're in self-exile. <laughs> if you should say, <laughs> self-exile. So by mid-sixth century, um, he basically gets this sense that He's seen the world, he has the skills, and he is in a position to start writing about self-help books. Essentially self-help philosophy for this, you know, uh, semi-disjointed society that he sees could be united. That he was among many pieces of. Like he had a good lens on many platforms. On many platforms. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, So that's Confucius the man. And so he takes to the quill. He takes he <laughs> takes to the quill. Actually, they probably didn't write with quills back then. Confucius starts writing down these ideas and this philosophy and acquires some disciples along the way that follow him. And he's considered one of the great sages in Chinese history. And certainly Confucius, Confucius ideology um, would it was around, but it was one of many ideologies that people listened to and thought about in this time period. And so a lot of time actually goes by from when Confucius the man actually lives until it becomes this widespread doctrine in China. So I'm going to jump ahead a long time actually to the Han Empire. The Han are contemporaries of Rome and like the Roman Empire. Okay. The Han in traditional history represent this birth of uniquely Chinese culture that would last for the next two millennia. And this is a really important breakthrough cultural moment. They're responsible for so many things that we like. When we think China, we think the Han compared to all the dynasties that had preceded it, including the the dynasty under which Confucius lived, right? So we're talking, you know, 500 years-ish have passed or at least two, 300 years have passed. That's a ton of time. A ton of time. And so it's really not until the Han that that Confucius becomes synonymous with Chinese culture. At that, that's he, when he becomes gets his celebrity status because they decide to adopt Confucianism as a practice, the the philosophy oh. of the empire. 
So we always have to ask, okay, so this is a, I, I love these moments in history as a history teacher oh because gosh, it's like, watch out nerds. Oh my God. This is like the best. So it's like, <laughs> wow, breakthrough moment, cultural development, everything's progressing. The Han, the Han, they're amazing. Bah, 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 bah. And then you say, but wait, was it amazing for women? Snap. And the answer folks is not really. I'm so, shocked. Ah, <laughs> oh, surprise. Now. Darn. The Han adopted Confucianism, which emphasized moderation, virtue, filial piety, which we talked about before. Um, they covered and, and these these positive points of emphasis sort of cover up how authoritarian, patriarchal, and all of these other sort of negative things for women. The Confucianism and the Han Empire's, in, at least, it, uh, interpretation of Confucianism mm. was. It creates Confucianism because it, in some ways, it's such a positive ideology. It creates this really tough barrier for women within China to have rights and respect. And it is, you know, it is, you know, modern Chinese feminists, they are battling Confucianism the same way that we are battling the patriarchy, right? Because Confucianism is the patriarchy. You turn to all the men to your left and they're, they're in the charge. One, they're in charge, right? So when it comes to women, it's really hard to know if Confucius intended to be discriminatory towards them because he doesn't explicitly write about women. And I'll, I'll make a couple references to times where he does, but really it is very few and far between. And so one thing that's hard is when people are reading it is their own sexism blending into what he's saying when they when the reader looking at Confucianism yeah, is using their own lens. Are they adding their own lens and their own sexism that Confucius maybe didn't have? Or was he genuinely sexist? Was he a product of his time? And he intended it to be interpreted that way. Regardless of what his intentions are in Chinese culture, Confucianism and sexism are intertwined. They go together. Confucius basically ignores the existence of women in his writing. For example, at whoa, one point- whoa, whoa. Right. This is bizarre. At one point, 10 ministers come to see the king, and Confucius states that nine people came. One of them was a woman. And we know that one of them was a woman- because it's it's like mentioned in there, but she's not acknowledged as a minister. And so when people look at this, I can't. it's really unclear like why he's neglecting acknowledging her. Is he commenting on the fact that it's unusual, right? Like one out of nine is a woman, bizarre, right? And so he doesn't, he's sort of calling, like, is he sort of saying, okay, nine ministers came and this woman came along too, and she was a she was a minister, and how amazing! There's a woman minister. Or was he saying like nine ministers came, and I'm going to completely ignore the fact that one of them was a woman? You know, <laughs> why can't the history just be like there was this badass woman and a couple dudes? Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> why? I know. Like, There's only she have been the leader of the pack. <laughs> couldn't they have been following her? Perhaps, and we'll never know. We will not. Um. So there's only a couple direct references to women in Confucius's writing, and um, a lot of them are 
kind of overtly hostile. So (laughs) I know that's shocking to you, but he said, quote, women and servants are hard to deal with. Chill, dude. (laughs) Same, dude. (laughs) Men are hard to deal with also. Okay. (laughs) Heads of household. I think that their writing is impressive. Hard to deal with. Um, Wait, did someone, like, go through and highlight all of these women, like, the women mentioned Yeah, I mean, feminist historians, feminists in Confucian culture have gone through and looked, tried to look at, like, where does this oppressive culture that we live in come from? Like, let's go back to what Confucius actually said about women, Yeah, let's see if there's any misconception here of his comments. Yeah, and, you know, like, he's saying, like, women are hard to deal with. And it's really hard to figure out, like, okay, like, is that just a man who has, you know, like, I think... Some of the people I live with are annoying. Like, like, is that just a comment about, you know, or is this, is this a, it, when there's so few references to women, yeah, it's hard can it to really like, be his philosophy or is it just commentary it's on just, a just day? Like a, yeah. It's just like a side note. So, um, one of the things that I think is more meaningful is to look at the yin and yang concept that a lot of us probably know. And that oh. comes from Confucius, um, in the yin yang idea, you've got, you know, the black and the white, and there's that little dot of each on, you know, yeah. that, that bring the shape together. And it's um, a harmonious shape where yeah, and you have it, to have a little of each side to make it harmonious. Exactly. So one thing that's really hard is that the um the yin yang concept is basically taking the feminine qualities and male qualities. And asserting sort of a doctrine of they are separate, but they are equal. And oh, good. <laughs> while you could positively interpret it as equal, the way that people talk about the yin versus the yang is not positive towards women. And feminists in China today really reject the yin-yang model because it's been used to justify women's subordination and exclusion from life outside the home, right? Because they're separate but equal. So you stay in your home, we stay in the, you know, this the world outside, in right. the, you know, in that in that space and it keeps it keeps women from having job opportunities and potentially voting and all those things through through time. Um, yin and yang are starkly different. They're man and woman. Um, they have different qualities. Yang uh, is strong, but yin, which is the female version, is weak and yielding. <laughs> I don't even know. Kelsey's quoting here, not, yeah. not her own opinions. <laughs> a man is honored for his strength and a woman was glorified for her beauty Right. And so you're creating sort of like these are the ideal. And a lot of Confucianism is this is what the ideal is, mm-hmm. um, at which is creating these, you know, stereotypes and burdens that people have to live up to in Chinese culture. Um, Confucian philosophy meant that women lived pretty subjugated lives. Women could not earn money outside the home and were expected to leave um their family to join their spouses when they married. So this is, I think, really different from our culture where 
oftentimes people live closer to the woman's family. Um, and that's not always true. We don't, there's no pressure to do that either way. And usually you, you live near the family you can tolerate better, <laughs> but that's, a, that's a little bit different. Yeah, there's definitely, there's cultures within American culture and society that still uphold a lot of those historical values from different countries that they come from or yep. their families are historically from like Italian families living closer together or Irish families living closer together. So, Yeah. Um, because baby daughters were, you knew that they were going to grow up and then they were going to leave you. Um, it was, it created, in addition to all the other reasons why having a daughter was seen as a burden in every other culture around the world, it also created this idea of like, what's the point in investing in this? Because it's right. just going to leave us. Um, so in. So I imagine schooling, education. All those things. But even worse, um, female infanticide in China was particularly problematic. It was problematic all over the world. So I don't want people to walk away being like the Chinese, you know, but, but it, um, it was, it was really tough and it, it is Confucianism didn't help that dynamic. Um, infanticide is, is common practice around the world because, Especially in a time period before um, pasteurized milk, when you basically, if you can't breastfeed your baby, it will die. And because there's no alternative to you breastfeeding your baby. And so infanticide, you know, killing your baby is is not as horrifying, I guess, as I thought it was. It was more like, what is the point in trying to keep it alive? Like it is going to die and the best way to... Like, I just want my baby to not suffer to death. Yeah, starve um, to death. So um, so in some ways you could look at it that way. But the selective killing of baby girls, female infanticide. By the way, there's no such thing as male infanticide. Like, there, there's no – like. there's no, oh, because it's male, we're going to kill it. Like, not a culture in the world has that. Every culture in the world is guilty of having some extent of female infanticide because of the gendered way that we view men and women in our society and the values that we put on their their gender, right? Yeah, and the abilities and the beliefs, I mean, the beliefs that we have in men in the society that they will care for the family, can earn money, earn income, become more of a con- contributor to the family. Even in societies where money is not a factor, it's who can farm, who's stronger, who can work. Mm-hmm. And women, it's not the case. Um, I have this primary source quote from a Chinese man. He he said, an ancient, an ancient Chinese man, he said, even a poor man would bring up a son, but even a rich man would dispose of a daughter, oh. which is pretty horrible. And it gives you the sense that the way that I explained infanticide, right? Like if you can't breastfeed your child, if you can't feed it, if you can't care for it, it's a, a arguably, or at least the way people saw it in, in, older times, a more humane thing to do for the baby. But this is saying, it doesn't matter. Like, this isn't about wealth. This isn't about you'd rather a wet have a nurse. Son. You'd rather have a son and you're getting rid of it because it's female. Well, and then how China put a cap on size of families so you could only have four. Yeah. And so if you had a daughter already and you had a second, you couldn't have a son. So, so many families would get rid of their second daughter. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it's a problem that persists. I mean, that was a an issue that they were having related to population growth. But the effect of that was like such horrible gender discrimination and the treatment of young girls, you know, selective abortions where they're they're uh-huh. choosing to abort baby girls because they're girls, right? So it, that's, I mean, yeah. And you, so you're seeing what you're talking about is two millennia later, the same ideology impacting, impacting culture. This, this same culture. Not to mention that it's been proven that the male sperm is gender identifying, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's not let's not castrate them. Let's make girls get abortions. <laughs> Han women um, had no control over who they married. They had to live with their spouse's family who selected her as a strong mate. So they're like, okay, we want that one. You know, it's just sort of bizarre. Like cattle. The proverb is a boy is born facing in, a girl is born facing out because she's going to leave the family one way or the other, which is hard in a, in a society that values filial piety, values loyalty to your family, mm. right? If you have a daughter, she's not going to be loyal to your family. She's going to be loyal to someone else's family, right? Because that's also the pressure that society puts on her. Maybe she wants to be loyal to her family. She doesn't really have a choice. Yeah. Out you go. Out you go. So this is a really, like, tough landscape. Tough. It's like mountain on mountain on mountain. Like, hey, girl, you want to grow up in this society? I'm good. That that looks a little rough. Mm -hmm. Like, how did women even survive? Right. I mean, in some ways, you're, you're talking about, like, basic survival. So a couple centuries later... There's a woman named Ban Zhao who we have talked about on the podcast before. And so if you you didn't listen to that episode, it would be a really good one to go back to. She's the first um, female historian in world history, Um, although she technically doesn't get that credit because she was completing her father's work. And we, we explored her and her impact on... Chinese culture. Right. Um, and she by no means would modern feminists be like, yeah, Banzao, because she sort of redefines um, Confucian ideology to create space to educate women. Um, mm-hmm. Because like you were talking about, what's the point in educating your daughter if you're just going to send her off? And essentially the idea is like, well, if you're going to send her off, you want her to be prepared for whatever she's about to go off. Yeah, so she can be, into. she's going to be a good support to um, the family. A good representation of your family. Right. So we do have that episode out for people to listen to because – She's really, she's really interesting. Um, in season one, we structured the podcast a little bit differently. So yep. you'll notice, you'll notice that difference pretty quickly. But I, I highly encourage people to pick up that episode because it will build off of what we're talking about here. So that is in season one, episode 15, and it's titled Women Historians and Primary Sources. We highlight two women, Ban Zhao and Anna Kamenna, um, who is from the Byzantine Empire and technically gets the credit as the the first female historian in world history because she writes her her own history, not just finishing her father's. So anyway, Confucianism, I think it's really important to look at the the not just the religion or the philosophy, but also how and this is true for any, you know, world history course or world cultures course. When you're teaching about something, just because it's a breakthrough, like the Han Empire, it's a powerful breakthrough. It, you know, it's a cultural revolution. There's, you know, it's the most united China had ever been in in up to that point. 
And so it's very important, but it's, it's hard because it also creates these barriers that women now have to overcome. And, you know, the safety, you could argue that the safety and the protection that they get from a united empire is really important to all people in China, including women. And so maybe that's a net gain, even if they have to deal with some sexism along the way. So it's tough, but I think analyzing the layers and the gender- But this also put some women in power, I imagine, enacting some of this, that he's, his ideology, piety, you know, being, you know, gracious and beautiful and all these things, I imagine employed some women- Matchmakers. Yeah, matchmakers, dressmakers, beauticians, you know, women Mm -hmm. that were really leading in the society, showing what the culture norms should be. Yeah. So, you know, there might be some some women that come out And Banzao would be one of those people who, you know, was able to sort of capitalize on existing ideology and reshape it. Yeah. Um, So kind of that influencer position of, of that time period. Totally. We're kicking off world religions with Confucianism. We will be sending everybody further westward from here. Um, To the west, to the west. Yeah, to learn about more religions. But I hope people will take some of these ideas and think about how to better teach Chinese history um, and think about how it impacted the whole population rather Mm. than just, you know, when we say a period is a breakthrough, a breakthrough for whom is my question to you? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Ah, okay. Confucianism. Confucianism. Yeah, did it. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.